to another edition of Smith & Jones here on Sportsnet 5.9 at the Fan. Eric Smith and, unfortunately, no Paul Jones this week. Uh, little housekeeping just off the top here. Jonesy experiencing a bout of laryngitis. And just to make sure that he's good to go for the broadcast over the course of the next week and that the, the voice is ready and the pipes are ready for calling games, Jonesy has reluctantly stepped aside for this week's show. So it is Smith solo. But, hey, it's still Smith & Jones. I wish I had my guy with me, but we will get Jonesy back on the show next week. And to uh, start things off this week, I'm pleased to be joined by a longtime pro baller, had a career overseas, but played in the NBA as well for the Philadelphia 76ers, for the Washington Wizards, for the Atlanta Hawks as well, and currently an analyst on the Hawks television broadcast as well, Brian Oliver. Hey, Brian, before I look forward, I want to look back a little bit because I probably think I'm in the, the boat with a lot of people, maybe even many people connected with the Atlanta Hawks and certainly the, the Hawks fan base. Just as a fan, forget about broadcaster, as a fan of the game, in the offseason, when I see the Atlanta Hawks making a move and San Antonio giving up on DeJounte Murray and suddenly he's a member of the Hawks, I'm scratching my head going, A, what is San Antonio thinking, and B, what a windfall, what a pleasure to see DeJounte Murray joining the Atlanta Hawks and then an offseason to then get ready for this year, and then boom, this team hitting the ground running with such a dynamic backcourt. Yeah, I'm with you, Eric, because when I saw that deal go through as a fan, I'm sitting there thinking, well, is San Antonio basically saying they're going into tank mode? Um, and then I know that everyone's you know, trying to lobby for that first pick, but for the Atlanta Hawks, when you get a guy – like DeJounte Murray, who night in and night out is a walking triple-double. Um, not only is he a guy that can score, that can you know deliver and get people involved with assists and the rebound. I mean, this is a guy that night in and night out can get you two to three steals. I mean, he's a great defender. And so for the Hawks, last year some of their problems were on the defensive end. And to land a guy like that in the backcourt to take uh, pressure off of Trey Young, I mean, that's a huge win for the Hawks and their fans. What do you think it was from? And again, neither one of us are behind the you know the the curtains of, of what's going on in San Antonio. But just your best guess, because you're a guy that's been there as a as a player for many years too. Like, what do you think the motivation was behind that move? Well, I mean, when you look at what San Antonio was doing, I mean, I think that maybe they were thinking, you know, you got a Victor Wembanyama coming up, and he's a generational mm-hmm. talent. And so I think that you know, if you've got a chance to see him over the summer and some of these summits. Uh, maybe they were thinking, hey, we're, we're at that place where we're not going to possibly make the playoffs or the play-in with the team that we have, and maybe we're going to rebuild. And then you look and say, well, maybe what we do is we try to blow this thing up and put ourselves in a position where, you know, it's not uh, fashionable to say that you're going to tank, but I think you put yourself in a position. And my initial thoughts is they put themselves in a position to possibly go at Wimbenyama because he is a, a guy that can turn your franchise around. If, you know, you look back at what San Antonio did back in the day with being able to get the number one draft pick when they had David Robinson, that landed them uh, Tim Duncan. And so maybe mm-hmm. they're thinking we're going to press the reset button. You know, we're going to go ahead and send out DeJounte Murray and clear some space and go after Wimbenyama. That's what That was my initial thought. Yeah, I mean that's 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 probably the best thought of all, I suppose, because otherwise, I, yeah, again, I keep saying I'm using the same line, but I I was and I kind of still am a little bit scratching my head. And the the, the tough thing is, and I say this somewhat tongue in cheek, Brian, I think you probably agree, is whether we're talking about San Antonio or any number of teams in the NBA, if they're trying to go after the the big man in next year's draft, 
I don't know if there's a whole lot of tanking going on right now because there's a lot of teams playing extremely well out of the gates this year that we probably didn't anticipate. And again, we're not even at the quarter point yet. There are a lot of teams that we might have expected to be a heck of a lot lower down in the standings that are actually playing quite well to this point. I mean, one of the teams that stands out for me is Utah. I mean, when they basically clear a house and they get rid of Gobert and they get rid of, uh, gosh, I forget his name, over in Cleveland now, um, they they looked like they were def, definitely in tank mode. But they yeah, Donovan Mitchell. They yeah. one, Donovan Mitchell, excuse me. They're one of the best teams in the West and how they're playing. There's no way that I think anyone foresaw them having the, the beginning of the season that they are. I mean, they are really doing great. And like you say, there's some teams that you expect to be doing better now that are doing worse. And then there's some that you do not expect the turnaround that they've had. You know, it's interesting, again, I reference the fact that we're not even at the quarter point. We're approaching it for, for most teams. Um, but I look at a team like Atlanta, and Brian, I'll, I'll share my own little theory here, and you can agree or disagree. I've said this a couple times since even prior to the start of the season. I felt that at some point, whether it was the quarter pull the halfway point at some point in the league, in the season, excuse me, two teams in the East, I don't know about the West, but two teams in the East would kind of start to separate. I didn't know which two teams. I assumed that Milwaukee might be one of them. But I figured two teams would start to separate. But then throw the rest in a hat. And I mean arguably 3 through 15, but certainly 3 through 10, 3 through 12. I don't see that there's a whole lot of separation between at least 10 other teams in the Eastern Conference, and I don't want to sit here and pat myself on the back too hard here, break my arm doing so, but certainly, you know, 15, 20-odd games into the season, it's kind of looking that way. There's so much parity in the Eastern Conference. Eric, I agree with you because when you eliminate Boston and Milwaukee, they're in another tier. So you look at what Atlanta's doing. you got Cleveland there. Obviously, Toronto and what they have as far as the makeup and the people that they have. You know, you throw you know a surprising Indiana in there, and then you got some teams that are still struggling trying to deal with the internal issues. I mean, Brooklyn, you know what? They are a disaster, but you expect them some point to get their stuff together. Chicago has started out the gate slow. Uh, how about Miami? You know, you look at Philadelphia. Uh, New York is up and down, and you've got Washington that's got some pieces. So, like you say, I mean, 3 through 12 to 13, at any time those guys can shift, and, you, you know, they could go from 3 to 12 and from 12 to 3rd. How difficult is that to deal with on a night-to-night basis, do you think, with, you know, again, Brian, I know that as a player you've been there, and it it sounds cliche sometimes, but we know it happens. Opponents can take teams lightly sometimes. You look at the schedule, you look at the record, you see somebody coming to town, think, okay, maybe maybe we can, maybe not quite 50%, but we can maybe get by an 85% tonight, but it doesn't seem like there's too many of those nights, again, especially in the Eastern Conference, where you look down and you can make a case for just about any darn team on any night right now and, and thinking, man, I could see this game going either way. Man, there are so many times in last year watching the Hawks play, you may have a team come out and they're missing two or three of their starters and you're all about thinking it's going to be a blowout, and then they relax and they end up getting beat at home by 10 to 15. And so what you realize is that, you know, there's no easy night because when you look at some of these teams and you start saying, okay, this team is, is missing their point guard, they're missing this, this big guy, and then I mean, these are NBA players, and these are a lot of guys that normally don't get a lot of burn, a lot of tick, and then when you see them get the opportunities, they come out and they turn it around. 
I mean, you look at the beginning of the season, someone like LaMelo Ball and him having the ankle injury, Dennis Smith Jr., no one expected him to come out and play as well as he, as he has. And so there are times where you have nights where uh, the teams that you are expecting to play well, they fall short on their face. Uh, it, it's hard to read. I mean, you look at that Miami team that, you know, you really thought that they would be playing a lot better than what they have been so far. But then you take a guy like P.J. Tucker off of their team, and, and they're struggling. It's hard to fathom that one guy that doesn't score a lot, that means a lot for them defensively, you take them away, and then they struggle. Speaking with Brian Oliver, Brian, I want to circle back to where I started off the top, but not just about DeJounte Murray, the one-two punch of Murray and Young in the backcourt. It's kind of probably a, a tired or, or um, um, what's the best word that I'm looking for here? Maybe a, a tired or lazy narrative sometimes from people about is there enough ball to go around? Clearly there is in Atlanta. I mean, the, the, the two of them, Young and Murray, putting up some gaudy numbers, and not just the scoring, the assist totals, the unselfishness from both players – and that's got to be an incredible luxury in today's game and the way that the Hawks play and the style of play that they have to have two guys that can orchestrate or play off the ball as adeptly as the other. Yeah, Eric, I think what's helped them is the fact that, like you say, you've got two guys that can play off the ball, two guys that are, are really good at being able to not only score but create. Uh, it's, it's different in how they both do it. You know, Trey is one of those guys that can shoot the lights out of it soon as he comes across half court uh, a lot of times he's penetrating and breaking down the defense and the, the Atlanta Hawks bigs normally will be recipients of lobs what you've seen with DeJounte is that he's more of a mid-range guy tries to get to his sweet spot his penetrations he's not really mastered to getting those lobs but he likes to make those pocket passes and so with the adjustment for the Hawks players is understanding you got two guys that can get the ball to you at all times but what I've seen early is that they both are uh, willing passers. Uh, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of ego involved. And the fact that they have gelled so quickly, uh, you know, Nate McMillan would, would tell you he's even surprised because he thought it would take a little bit more time for them to develop the offensive chemistry and an offensive rhythm. What do you think has helped that? I mean, is it is it a combination, maybe the best answer, a little bit of both in terms of Murray as a person, let alone as a player, but then also the core of the Hawks being very similar to last year and kind of have been together for a while now, and that sort of allows a new guy to fit into the crew seamlessly as you talk about? Yeah, I, I think that when the process was going and the trade was made, there was a lot of discussions about, you know, trade how, trade how he was so excited to have DeJounte, DeJounte coming in and working out with the guys. Uh, I think it's that, you know, the type of player that he is, uh, obviously he's a really good scorer, but he's a guy that does a lot well. Uh, I've had a chance to go to a couple of the Hawks practices, and he's one of those guys, too, that there's a level of accountability that works well in the locker room, uh, that when you see a guy that's out there that he's playing defense first, he's trying to get everyone involved, I think it's contagious, and that's one of the things that's made his transition into this group probably a little bit easier because of he's uh, been able to fit into that locker room. And you know that most guys that come into an organization, they're trying to establish themselves as being you know, a certain type of player and so the thing is, is him being willing to kind of fit in where he can has made it a lot easier. And he's a guy that lays it out uh, night in and night out. He may not shoot the ball particularly well every night, but you know what you're going to get from him defensively. There have been times for the Hawks that they've had games that they may normally lose, but he is the guy that's the catalyst on defense to get them going. And it's something that you see that's contagious for that Hawks team. 
speaking with Hawks analyst Brian Oliver, former nba as well. And I want to actually talk to you briefly about your college career in a couple of seconds, too, or at least give you a chance to plug a documentary that's coming to, going to be coming out soon as well, at least stateside. I'm sure we'll find a way to, to get it up in Canada as well and, and across the globe. But, Brian, a little bit more on the Hawks. When Atlanta was uh, in town in Toronto earlier in the season, one of the players outside of, we've been talking so much about Murray uh, and, and Young, one of the players that Nick Nurse specifically mentioned as a guy that's been a consistent threat to the Raptors and, and, a, and a top performer against Toronto time and time again over the years is John Collins. And he is he is one of those guys where, I you know, I don't know if we believe the rumor mill or not. His name has seemingly popped up from time to time and, and whether Atlanta was or is interested in dealing with the guy. But that to me is a guy you hold on to with everything because he's that type of player that I got to think every team wants a dude that has the talent and the skill set and the diverse skill set of a John Collins. Yeah, and I agree with you. I think that for anything, when you look at uh, his skill set, a guy that's ultra-athletic that can finish out, you know, jump shots and you finish at the rim, you know, if people are putting you in the trade rumors, there's a reason. But then my thought was always that if you, you trade a John Collins, who do you bring in with that skill set and that athleticism and a guy that's going to be able to anchor down your defense, uh, that can stretch the, the defense and knock down a three-pointer, who can now put the ball on the floor and get to a spot. Um, I, I know there's always speculation because teams are always looking to try to, you know, make adjustments. But if, if I'm at the Hawks, who do you bring in to fill in that void? But I also know that there are, there are teams that are looking to upgrade at the four position. John Collins is always one of those guys. It's got to be a name that you got to mention. If you're Atlanta and you're prepping for the Raptors, what do you think scares you the most, or con- maybe not scares you, concerns you the most about a Toronto team still playing without Pascal Siakam? Well, the thing for me is their length. The length and the fact that they've got so many guys that are athletic that can create uh, kind of disruptions on your offense. They don't allow you to run your sets. Uh, their ability to be able to put bigger defenders on smaller guards. I think one of the things that, you know, Trey is as well a score as he is, being able to have someone that's six seven, six eight, that can stay in front of him and not allow him to get separation. Uh, Toronto does an amazing job of once they turn you over, getting they've got guys that can get out and not only uh, knock down uh, three point shots, but can get to the rim. Uh, the fact that they're so well coached and so well disciplined, uh, the Hawks seem to, seem to to have an issue with them because they've got a lot of three point shooters. Uh, they've got guys that even can step in when Siakam's not on the floor and give you big buckets because of the system that they run. They touch the paint a lot, uh, can finish around the rim, and they force teams to have to to adjust to them on both ends of the floor. Um, traditionally, the Hawks have problems with them again because they're a physical bunch that will get in and you know sometimes punch you in the mouth. And once you get staggered, if you're not able to recover from that, they keep coming at you. Uh, having a playmaker in Fred Blenbeek, the fact that he can score, but he runs that team. Um, they've got 10 quality guys they can sub in and out. Uh, always makes them a threat whether they're at home or away. I always go back to when uh, you had the bubble when they really didn't have a home to play, but yet they were still able to go into these arenas and, and still win. Uh, it just shows a lot about the talent pool that they have. You know, Brian, one other point I wanted to make on, on the Hawks um, before, I, before I give you a chance to, to give a little plug on this documentary I was teasing a little bit earlier as well. I'm really looking forward to seeing this thing, and again, we'll discuss it in a minute. Um, one of the things that stands out to me about Toronto this year is 
the addition in the offseason, we haven't seen a ton of him because he was hurt to start the year and then he had some family business to take care of as well. And now, unfortunately, he's hurt again in, in Otto Porter. But the addition of Otto Porter and then last year midseason, the addition of Thad Young and then bringing him back in the offseason. The Raptors are a fairly young team still, but they've got a couple of young vets, quote-unquote, in Van Vliet and Siakam, even OG Ananobi. But now you've got a couple of those old heads, those glue guys. Atlanta's still a fairly young team. There are a couple of veterans on this squad, but fairly young. And I look back to just a few years ago and having Vince Carter around. Now, there aren't a ton of guys from that Vince era, if it's fair to call it that, or those Vince years with the Hawks. But certainly there are a couple of key ones, and at the top of that list, Trey Young. And I wonder about the impact that Vince had on Trey as a young player and now the young leader, the young vet that he is right now. Well, I, I want to tell you, Vince was amazing for the Hawks franchise because you're talking about, you know, a Hall of Famer, a guy that was a superstar that even at the, you know, the end of his career, you know, we joked that Vince is one of those guys that played in four decades. Um, being able to uh, have a guy like Trey and the younger guys and take them under, under their wing kind of helps them on the professionalism side. They help them understand that not only are you the star, but you have to also find ways to, to step up your game to make your teammates better. I think that Vince being able to be in Trey's ear, and when you look at you know the additions of Otto Porter, um, him playing at Golden State and having a career where he's been a guy that can do everything is valuable in the locker room for those younger guys because they may have the talent, but then as far as the experience or how to take care of their bodies, how to make sure that, you know, that you are preparing and how you manage yourself when you're doing back-to-back, so you're on the road playing four games out of six nights. Uh, guys like that are critical to the younger generation, especially the stars, that may not know how to maybe manage their time and then also take their games to the next level. Brian, great stuff today. We appreciate you joining us. But, again, as I've said a couple of times before we go here, I did want to give you a chance to, to make mention of uh, this documentary that's that's going to be coming out. Um, I don't know a ton about it myself, but, folks, if it, listen, if you're a basketball fan and especially going back to being a college ball fan, uh, you know the name Brian Oliver, uh, along with Dennis Scott and, and Kenny Anderson, the, the lethal weapon three, which led Georgia Tech uh, to the final four back in 1990, a documentary now about that team, will be uh, airing in the U.S. Brian, what can you tell us about this, Doc? So uh, I'm trying not to date myself, but, you know, you go back 32 years since uh, <laughs> Kenny, uh, Kenny, Dennis, and I were uh, uh, at Georgia Tech. Uh, ACC Network reached out to us with Raycom uh, to do this documentary. We filmed it back around uh, June and July, and it literally kind of goes back in time when uh, Dennis, Kenny, and I were uh, at Georgia Tech, all of us, uh, averaging over 20 points a game. We won the ACC championship and went on to the Final Four, losing to eventual title winners, uh, UNLV. Uh, it's something that literally kind of goes back for the, uh, the the basketball fans of that era where, you know, you, you hear people still to this day talk about Lethal Weapon 3 and the up-tempo pace that Bobby Crimmins allowed us to play. Uh, as I got a chance to kind of preview it a little bit, uh, it, it's – kind of hard not to get nostalgic uh, a little emotional because that was a great period in time uh dennis kenny and i've all gone on to have uh, great basketball careers and we still keep in touch with each other today but it's just one of those things it's good to re- revisit that moment in time and for college basketball uh fans that can remember and identify with that era it's going to be a pretty good watch 
And Lee, hey, listen, if you played for Duke, I wouldn't have given you a chance to plug that. So, so, so it's the fact that you, anybody but Duke, Brian, anybody but Duke. Hey, Eric, if I knew that you were a Duke fan or a Duke alumni, I would have done the show. <laughs> good, good. Glad to hear we're in lockstep on that one. Brian, thanks for the time. Hey, thanks for having me. Always great to chat with Brian Oliver. And, again, always great to chat with a guy that didn't attend Duke. This is a Duke-free zone, and it's going to stay that way when we've got a Villanova product coming up on the show, Alvin Williams, and then later on Thaddeus Young as well. But just want to quickly remind you to subscribe to Smith & Jones, download Smith & Jones wherever you get your podcast: Google, Spotify, Apple, or other. Download, subscribe, rate, and review. And again, when we come back, I'll go one-on-one with Alvin Williams on Smith & Jones. Smith and Jones, Eric Smith flying solo this week. My man Jonesy battling a little bit of laryngitis, and we'll get him back on the show next week. So Smith and Jones solo with me, but never solo when I've got my guy Alvin Williams with me. I mean, he's been a regular on Smith and Jones since we've been doing the show for the last three years or so, and I bring the Villanova product, the Raptors television analyst, into the conversation. Alvin Williams, Al, always love chatting with you, man. Thanks for having me. Hey, hope Jonesy gets better too, man. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Got a fingers crossed for him that he's good to go for all the upcoming broadcasts and whatnot, and I'm, sh- I'm sure he'll be fine. And, and, Al, I was joking in the last segment with Brian Oliver, a Georgia Tech product, about the fact that this is a Duke-free zone. This is a Duke-free show, so we're good to go with you, a Villanova guy. I mean, listen, if Gary Trent ever wants to come on the show, Gary Trent Jr., maybe we can make an exception, but otherwise, Duke-free zone. And, and putting, putting all jokes aside about Duke, though, for a second, Al, Another Georgia Tech guy that we're going to hear from later in the show, Thaddeus Young. One of the things I was talking to Brian about is the impact of the veterans on this team. The Raptors still are a fairly young team. they got some young vets, as I was saying to Brian. And, you know, think of Fred, think of Pascal, even OG. But not many old heads. They brought one in last year in Thad Young. They signed one in the offseason at Otto Porter. What kind of a difference, kind of an impact do you think guys like Porter and, with no disrespect, more so young, have made on this team? No, they make a huge impact. You know, first of all, when you, when you bring a vet in, they have to buy in, right? Every every vet, unlike Otto Porter, he he signed here that his young was traded. But you have to buy in because as a vet, you see so much through the course of your career and you experience so much. You start coming up with your own frame of thought. Right, so when you go into a situation like the two older guys have, you're observing, you're seeing how people are interacting, you see if the coaches are trustworthy, you're seeing if you can rely on the players, you're just seeing everything. But that is really, you know, you're talking about that is he really, you know, came in with a with an appreciation. I've heard him speak highly of the organization, of the coaching staff, and their preparation. You know, so now all he has to do is. Put you know, put the guard down and go out there and play his game. And not only the benefit and the value is of his experience, he still can play at a high level. He's still a great decision maker. He still is finishing around a basket. He's going to hit you. He's going to hit a three for you. And he's going to bring that common force. So it's so important to have a player that's a vet on a team that can still actually go out there and perform. So that is, if you've seen as of late, he's been playing well, like playing very well. But he's been consistent, I think, 
anytime he gets in a game, you know, he brings that same element to the team. And Otto Porter, as soon as he gets healthy, he's going to bring his element of the outside shot. I thought before he got hurt, he did a good job of offensive rebounding and being physical to that point. So hopefully he can get right back healthy and bring that element. But the veteran leadership and a veteran presence is really is really important. Hey, I'll kind of a, a two- or three-pronged question here. I'm, I know I've talked to you at some point, probably at multiple points over the years, about the vets that made an impact uh, in your career, in your life even, arguably. Um, and, and, I mean, listen, we, we can always wax poetic and reminisce about some of those great vets from the Raptor teams and, and guys that you played alongside. But the point that you just made about guys that can still play – I got to assume there are exceptions to the rule. There are certain players that you would listen to, whether they are still contributors or not. Like perhaps a guy like Udonis Hassam is an example in Miami. We we heard you know uh, last week uh, earlier in the week uh, uh, about um, um, about Eric Spolstra talking about the impact that Haslam has still in Miami, even on him as the coach, let alone on the players. But he doesn't really see the floor. So again, exceptions to the rule. When you still have a guy, though, that can contribute or a guy that has found other ways to morph his game and, and to alter his game to still be a guy that can have an impact, even if the numbers aren't there, how huge is that to be able to not only hear it at practice, hear it on the bench, but then hear it and see it on the floor when he's actually going to battle with you? I mean, I mean once again, that's huge. I mean, once you have someone out there that's experienced it, that's right next to you, that's battling with you, that has your back, you know, that, that, that's huge. It's, it's like it brings the team together. And then when you have your shortcomings or you have your downs as a player, as a young player, and you have that vet that's willing to talk to you, right, that vet has to be willing to be engaging. It has to be willing to want to lead and, you know, try to provide insight. You know, you have some players, I'm sure, that's not that open. You know, they're there just to do their job and, and to get out of there and finish out their career and ride into the sunset. But when you have that player that's engaging, right, and that's that's really about the program and really about younger players getting better, you know that that that's something that you can't that can't be replaced. And then you talk about Udonis Haslam, you know he's somebody that coming to the NBA, low expectations. I don't even know if he was drafted, right? And you know he did what he did, but he is Miami. Like when you think about Miami Heat, he is that he's been there his whole career. So. Whether he's playing or not playing, he has the voice. He has he's put enough work in that when you come to Miami, whether he's on the floor or not, you're gonna to have to deal with him. And the coach has the respect, Pat Riley has I'm sure the ownership and just that whole city and state have a respect for Udonis Hazel. So he's done enough work as a player. Now he can just sit back, you know, like the grandfather and sit back and watch the youngins run around and, you know, when he wants to drop jewels, he can do that. So it's two levels of it. But like I said, it, it depends on that vet and how they really truly want to present themselves. And it, it comes to a point where you have to be comfortable as a vet. You have to buy in. You have to have that trust. But, you know, the Raptors are very fortunate to have Daddy is young and an auto porter. Hey, Al, you've seen the game from so many different levels and, and, and layers uh, as a player, as a coach, working management as well, but, but more so from the player and coach perspective. Even, even right now in coaching high school athletes, I got to imagine it's a little bit different than pros, but still the the root of what I'm about to ask, I got to assume is the same. Is basketball any different or is pro sports any different than if we were talking right now about uh, a group of people in broadcasting, a group of people at a law firm, a group of teachers at a school where 
is it about the personality or what is it that makes you uh, have that unselfish bone or that ability to not look over your shoulder? Because I've got to assume a lot of industries, you might have somebody that's in the prime of their career or even in the late stages of their career that doesn't necessarily want to be that veteran leader, that doesn't want to be that mentor. Why? Because they don't want that young person coming up and taking their job or knocking them off their pedestal or taking their money away or whatever it may be. What is it about the athlete then that can be open to I'm willing to groom and help guide that younger player? I think it's the makeup of the person, but you're absolutely right. You know, it's not different. It's not different than a Fortune 500 company. It's not different than, you know, someone with a nine to five. It's not different than you putting a team together to help a company grow, right? You you go to work with coworkers that you're not absolutely tight with. You have people at different phases of their career. You have some people that want to just work and happy and they're good to be there, but you have some people striving to be more and you have, companies being sold and being lied to and you want to go somewhere else for a better. So it's a lot of different elements. And it's the same thing with basketball players. It's the same thing with pro athletes. You know, there's some dishonesty there. There's not a lot of transparency. There's, you know, you have some players that are all for the program. You have some players that's using it for a pit stop to get a bigger and a better opportunity in their eyes. So it's hard to really identify that person or that group to make everything run smoothly, right? It's just like anything. I think the biggest thing is you're always you're being evaluated by just more than internally. You're being evaluated by the, you know, outside, by the fan base. So people have to act accordingly. People have to understand what their value is because somebody from the outside is always watching that could put a label on you that could affect your next move, right? So if, if you're a vet, you want to perform as a vet because these are your last days. Your numbers are, you know, it, it, numbers are being counted down. So you want to make sure you, you give your all to that role and that, you know, what that what those expectations look like, I feel. So that's the biggest difference, right, when, you, when you're dealing with a team of, of people in sports because you're being watched by the outside, and that information is given up quickly. It's shared quickly. It's not just in an interview process. It's almost everyday conversations. When you think about you and I conversations, we talk about athletes. We talk about whether we know them or we don't, we have our private conversations, right? And our, our thoughts and all of those things. But imagine if those things got out or imagine if we shared that, like, you know, out to the public, that could affect someone, mm-hmm. you know, good or bad. So I think that's the biggest thing when it deals with, you know, sport teams, athletes are always being watched and they're always being evaluated. So you have to conduct yourself when you have that understanding. Speaking with Alvin Williams, Al, when did you feel – it may, maybe you didn't. I, I don't know. That's why I'm asking the question. When did you feel comfortable as a pro where you maybe weren't looking over your shoulder? Never. Never. You know, that's just, you know, my makeup because I wasn't talented enough to have three or four or five bad games or three or four bad practices or skip practice and not have my spot taken, right? I always had to earn you know, a spot, even, you know, college, right? High school, my high school team might have been the only time where I was comfortable enough to, to you know, play however. But, you know, you're always striving for more. You try, you're trying to do well so you can go to college and all that stuff. So it was always 
a pressure. It was always an expectation. There was always something you put on yourself so you continue to get better. But I was never comfortable as a pro. Um, and I also start understanding the business. You know, the, the, the long when I signed my longer contract, I knew higher expectations. And I, then I knew, you know, the salary cap. And I knew things was trying to be adjusted where maybe I could be gone and the team could go in another direction. So I had to try to prove that I could still play. So to answer your question, I never had that that feeling of being comfortable or I was satisfied or I could relax because there was always somebody right there that was good enough or or had the ability to take my spot. So I I, I never had that good feeling. Let me let me take this in another direction, if if you don't mind as well, Al, because I, I I find this stuff interesting. Um, Wednesday night, uh, after the Raptor game against the the Heat, I ran into Lucas Nagara, former Raptor, and was chatting with him for a couple of minutes. And one of the things he and I'm paraphrasing here, but one of the things he was talking to me was just finally realizing or finally understanding what life after basketball might be, and that there was more to life than just basketball. Now, his might his his life may still go down a basketball related path, whether I don't know whether it's coaching or broadcasting or training, I have no idea. Or maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's completely unrelated, but it was just that that realization I guess for him and he was opening up to me for the 2 minutes that we were talking in the stands as I was getting set to to go do some post game work. When did it happen for you or was the ball always rolling, the wheel always spinning in your brain even in your rookie year, let alone, you know, as a as a vet when you were thinking about when this ends, I'm going to hope to do X. When did that happen, and when did you decide X or Y or Z might be? Never. I mean, you know, you never. Hmm. You know, it's it's a funny it's a funny thing, right? Like people talk to you about, you know, when it's over. So when you when you start playing basketball, and the idea of you know turning pro or possibly wanting to go pro. It was always, you know, it was always discouraged. You know, it, it would you, people would say, no, you can't do that. So right from the back, you know, people put something in your head like this is not a reality. And then when you do finally make it, you know, you make it or you get to the pros, you get to that level. Now it's, it's a different story. And then people start telling you about retirement. When it's over with, what you're going to do after retire, retirement? But you're 22 years old, 23, you're not thinking about retirement, right? So you, you're, you're staying away from those conversations because when I talk to young players now, I don't say retirement. I say transition or evolve because retirement to me was always thinking you're not doing anything else. So I never, I never had that. I never had the understanding of when it did come to an end, what I was planning. I thought basketball was going to be for a long time, like for a long time. So, you know, my knee injury came and I wasn't ready. And I didn't. It wasn't until Jay Triano, God bless his heart, man. I, he gave me a shout when he when he got the head coaching job, and he he said he appreciated the way I worked, my work ethic, and he would love to have me around the young players. And that was one thing with Jay when he first came to the team. He and I just bonded, right? He didn't have a he didn't have a position on the coaching staff. I don't think it was more like an internship, it seemed like. But he 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 had an interest in me. He would sit with me and watch film and shoot free throws and talk to me. We would joke. And we just had a bond. And when he got the opportunity, he brought me on. And if he didn't bring me on, I don't, I don't know what I've been doing. I, I, 
I, I was really struggling. I was struggling trying to find my next step. I was still trying to play pro-am games. And I love playing ball. I, I was with my family, but I was, I was going through depression. I was going through times where I was really un, uncertain. And, you know, that's just what it was. And I had, I had an education. I, I had money. I had family. But that basketball wasn't there. So I never, I never really figured it out until Jay gave me a shout. And then I started coaching. I started being around the game again. Then I got to work in the front office with Brian Colangelo and Masai and Mark Eversley and you know, all these people. And then things just started evolving from there. So fortunately enough for Jay Triano, he, he got me off my rocker where I wasn't just around the Philadelphia playing in pro-am leagues and people telling me you still can play in the NBA if you wanted to and all those things. So, But Jay Triano was the big, the big difference maker for me for my, for my post-career. Well, appreciate the time today, as always, man. Love having these types of conversations, just, you know, connected to the game, but not necessarily always just the X's and O's or the next game or whatever else. I love chatting like uh, like nah, this, man. Me, I appreciate your candor. You and me both, man. I think a lot of players need, especially retired players, need to have those conversations because the first thing you think about is being vulnerable, right? That's the hardest thing, at least for me, to be vulnerable with everything, whether it's relationships, finances, career. All of those things, open those conversations, that dialogue, man, it's critical. And I know it's critical for me, and I got to a place where I'm very comfortable speaking about everything. So it is huge, bigger bigger than the X's and O's, like you said. Thanks, Al. All right, brother. Always love chatting with my friend, my colleague, former Toronto Raptor, Sportsnet television analyst, Alvin Williams. Uh, and, again, I'll say it uh, – I mean, I said it to him personally, but I'll say it again right now. Always appreciate his honesty, his candor as well. Uh, love having conversations with Alvin Williams. To close out the show this week, again, flying solo on Smith & Jones. Jonesy will be back next week. But a little bit earlier, I had a chance to go one-on-one with Raptor veteran forward Thaddeus Young. Thad, again, welcome back to Toronto. Thank you. Why was it important for you to come back here? Uh, just, you know, it's one of those uh, films where it's like, you know, unfinished business kind of. Uh, you know, I only played, you know, 20-something games last year. Uh, and I've, I also felt like, you know, um, you know, coming from my previous situation that I wasn't at my full peak because I didn't get a chance to, like, really play in that, that first half of the season. So, you know, um, definitely wanted to, like, get into the summer, get myself back, you know, right, get myself mentally you know, ready and prepared for another season and then uh, sign back and, you know, make sure that, you know, um, we go out here and we do this thing together as a team. You know, I remember saying to you when you came to town, and I know you had heard it, Toronto had been eyeing you for a long time, not just last season, I mean for, for a number of years. And I think you said you were kind of aware of that too, that you were always sort of on the periphery. Why do you think it was important for them to go after you? Like, what do you think you bring to this team, not only just in those 20 games last year, but moving forward now in this new two-year deal? Uh, I think, you know, stability. Um, stability and then, like, the intang- intangibles uh, that I, I do. Like, I'm not a, a player that's going to do anything overly great, but I'm also a player that does a lot of good things. Uh, a player that can, like, go out there, he can pass, he can rebound, he can score. Just bring some of every different attributes that, you know, that basketball players have to the game. Uh, you know, I'm probably one of the most well, well-rounded players as far as being in the league, you know, for the past 16 years. But, you know, just going out there and just making sure that everything's stable, everything's together, you know, um, being a good, uh, st- stable piece for the young guys as well. 
Um, we have so many young guys. We have, you know, Scotty, we have Delano, we have, you know, Precious, <laughs> you know, we have so many young guys on the team. And being able to help them, you know, uh, you know, jump over these humps and, and make sure that they, they get to where their, their true ceiling is and their potential, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, I strive to do. Do you feel like the, and I say this respectfully, you're only 34 going on 35, but the father figure of this team, because you have the, the, the privilege of having been in the league 15 years now going into year 16. So you're a young man still, but you're, you're, a, you're a vet, and it's, it's almost like, to me at least when I look at you, your professional life and role is mirroring or mimicking your personal life as a father, as a leader, as somebody that's trying to guide two young boys, and, and you're trying to guide this relatively young Raptors team as well. Yeah, uh, for sure. You know, they, they both mimic each other. Um, you know, yes, I, I am a father. Yes, you know, I am kind of like the father figure of this team. But uh, I think the, the biggest thing is I'm still young enough to relate to the yeah. young guys. You know, um, and me being able to relate to the young guys, not with, like, you know, an old man mentality, but, you know, with the young guys mentality, like, we're going to go out here, we're going to work, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. You know, but bringing everybody along and bringing everybody together, like, the first week when I usually get to a team is like always an evaluation process for me. Like I try to evaluate every single guy to understand how I can connect with them or how I can get, you know, to them, you know, when we're, we're talking. Because you might go to Precious and you might can't scream at Precious. And then you can go to OG and you can scream at OG. You know, so, you know, just understanding the different personalities that you're dealing with and understanding the different guys and how you can connect with them to get them to come along so we can all win together as a team, as like, a unit. Like, like being a father. You yeah, yeah for sure. Talk, talk to yeah, your kids, kids different ways, yeah, right? Both of my kids. One of my kids <laughs> is super crazy, and the other one is just super laid back and chill like me. Well, my youngest son is the crazy one. He's the, we call him the bruiser of the group. <laughs> you know, so, so just being able to understand their different personalities and, and how they kind of, like, you know, they, they interact with each other and how you interact with them, you know, it's, it's always crazy. I'm sure this isn't the first time you've been asked about this, but the, the, the viral video that, that happened just, what, about a month or so ago at one of your camps where you were speaking to a bunch of young players, it even resonated with me, and I'm older than you, and I'm not even a player. I wasn't even in camp, and I was fired up just watching at home because, it, to me, it's everything that we've been talking about right here is, is trying to send that message of just doing something and finding a way to do a little... Like, I don't know if people in this room would agree, but... I almost looked at it like that. That's kind of what I've tried to do in my own career. Like try a bit of this and try a bit of that and help out and do what you can as opposed to just being a one-trick pony. And you've made such a career out of it. How much do you think those kids that heard that message from you truly let it sink in that it's not about scoring, it's not necessarily about the glitz and the glamour, it's about being a true team player? Uh, well, I hope it did. I hope everything that I said resonated in their minds uh, for the simple fact of, like, you know, it's, it's all facts. You know, I'm, you know, I'm the guy that you know, you, I'm a testament of it. So, you know, I'm going into my 16th season. You know, if you're not listening to a guy that's played 15 going into 16 seasons in the NBA, then something is wrong. You know, every kid, you know, now is being taught to and trained to go out there and be an assassin as far as scoring and stuff like that. You know, but, you know, what guys in the league are, you know, um, are looking at is, you know, our scouts and stuff are looking at is, like, how can you have a well-rounded game? You know, I try to tell kids all the time, you know, we have 30 NBA teams, right? So we have 30 NBA teams, and it's only two guys that's going to average 20 points per game on, that on those teams. So that's 60 guys. Yeah. <laughs> you know, having it's 60 out of, you know, the 450 that we have. You know what I'm saying? So it's still 390 guys that's all got to play roles. Right. And they're all going to make a ton of money. So you can do the same thing. You don't have to be that 20-point-per-game score guy. You can come out there and be – five, five, and five, you know, and 
and and bring something to the table. You know, as long as it's it's a it's it's a value for everything. And if you can show your value and your worth, you know, every time you step on the court, by not just scoring, by doing every single thing, then you're going to play a long time. You know, one of the things I marvel at too, kind of piggybacking on that, you figure two rounds, 60 players every year. Of those 60, let's say what 30, 35 make the league. So there's 30, 35 guys that were in the league last year that are not on a roster this year. Right. And that just, again, I think further solidifies your point of just finding something and multiple things to do to be that sort of... Car, you know, carve out your role. Car, yeah. Carve out who you are. Carve out like, what, you, what you know you can do. And you know, try to excel at that. And you know, if you excel at it, you know, it, can, it can pay huge dividends in the end. So what's your role with this team then? How do you see it? My role with this team is, you know, obviously to help the young guys continue to, you know, get further and further along as far as in their development. But also, uh, like I said, being a stable force, like when I come out on the court, just knowing that, okay, we're going to get, you know, this out of that. We're going, he's going to be this consistent piece every single night, you know, because that's what I built my career off, just being super consistent every single year. You know, it's not, you know, eye-popping stats, but it's the same thing every single year. And you know, okay, he's going to be there for us every single game. Like, he's going to do this, he's going to do that, he's going to do this, he's going to do that. And whatever job you need me to do, I'm willing to go out there and do it. Like, I try to, like, tell coaches, like, look, if you want me to I'm, – I'm here, two feet in. If you want me to, to run through that wall over there, right, I know the wall's going to hurt, <laughs> but – I'm gonna try it, right. <laughs> you know, and that's that's what I want coaches to understand that like I'm willing to do, I'm willing to do any and everything to win basketball games. All right, last one for you. How good can this team be? I'm not looking for a number. I'm not a big guy. And, oh, give me a prediction. But how good can this team be? Because they look real deep. Yeah, I mean, we're a super deep team. Uh, we've only gotten better, you know, throughout the summer. You know, we're adding, you know, guys like Otto and Wancho. You know, which I played with both of those guys. Yeah. I played with Wancho in San Antonio, and then I played with Otto in uh, Chicago. So, you know, me knowing both of those guys is perfect. Uh, but, you know, I think we, we can really be really good. You know, I think one of the top teams in the East uh, for sure, you know, for the simple fact of, like, piggybacking off what we did last year and then what we're, you know, planning to do this year. Best of luck. Really appreciate it. Thanks, man. That was my conversation with Raptors veteran forward Thaddeus Young, two members from Georgia Tech, Brian Oliver, Thaddeus Young, and of course, again, a Nova guy, Alvin Williams, on the show this week, Smith & Jones. Make sure you subscribe to and download Smith & Jones wherever you get your podcasts, Google, Spotify, Apple, or otherwise. Download, subscribe, rate, and review. Shout out to Paul Jones. Hope you feel better and get ready for next week's show. I was solo this week, but as always, it is Smith & Jones on Sportsnet 590 The Fan.